So crime, F.A., shooting. I don't know what F.A. is. Precinct of occurrence, 9th. Location, 13th, 3rd Ave. Okay. In front of me and my producer, Austin, is something we always knew we needed, but we're never sure we'd be allowed to see. Something essential to ever understanding the full story of what happened to Billy Balls. We're finally holding the police report from Billy's shooting. The NYPD sent a small stack of statements, forensic reports, handwritten notes, and 12 crime scene photos. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. This is a photograph of the front door of 13 Avenue. It's a black and white, super high contrast. Photograph clearly taken at night with a flash of the front of the storefront where my mom and Billy lived. And this is a crime scene photo. That's the next one. (sighs) I've heard so many stories from my mom about this storefront. It's wild to finally see the whole place. Oh my God. Now I'm looking at a photograph of the inside of their Apartment. There's exposed pipes on the ceiling and and just shit everywhere. It's just one big open room and there's stuff piled on everything. And the bed is up on a platform in the back of the room near the kitchen. The other thing about this photo that... This was exactly what my house looked like when I was a kid. I see evidence of her in this space. There's like some Grecian bust over here. There's flowers. There's the telephone. There's the workout gear, the movies, the records. Like everything is out. Everything, every evidence of being alive is on display. The next photo is a photo of the bathtub that she said he installed for her. There's a beer can resting on the edge of the bathtub and, like, bags of stuff on the ground. And there's two toothbrushes and a holder on the wall. This was their world. My brother had birds always. Oh, really? Mostly harmless little birds, all of them. Where did he keep all those birds? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that pronounced (laughs) aviary? This is a photograph of a mirror. It's like the bottom piece of a mirror. There's a bullet hole in it. This next picture is of a dresser with bullet holes in it. God, how many shots did this fucking guy fire? 
This is a photograph of the moment that somebody's life changed forever. Nothing was the same after this day. Not in his life, her life, Amanda's, mine. This day changed everything. From Crimetown, I'm Io Tillett Wright, and this is The Ballad of Billy Balls. That dude with the cowboy hat broke down the door shooting. That was an undercover narcotics detective. On the north side of the street is the 9th Precinct. I would like to hear if they still have records from 1982 and where they would be and how one could get them released. The NYPD has sent us a, a, a tranche, if you will, of records. There is a story that the police tell here. Chapter 8. Cops tend to shoot. Okay, so there's the complaint report. Storefront, 13 Avenue. Arrested William Heitzman, age 37, f- height 5 foot 10, weight 150. Okay. Oh, shit. Defendant arrested and charged attempted murder of a police officer. Defendant did cock and point a loaded 25 caliber automatic at undercover police officer number blank blocked out in an attempt to shoot said officer. Wow. After Billy's shooting, the undercover cop, the guy in the cowboy hat, gave a statement about what happened. We now have that statement. ADA O'Donohue from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office was present at the 9th Precinct and took a statement from undercover narcotics police officer S.H.I.E.L.D. number blacked out. (sighs) The officer stated that he had gone to 13th Avenue to make a narcotics purchase from a male known as Billy Piano, William Heitzman. During the time that he was in the apartment, the police officer observed the subject look at a telephone number written on a newspaper and then call his supplier. What's up, John? While the subject was on the phone, okay, so when you coming? the PO managed to look at the number and then went into the bathroom to write the number down. The subject came into the bathroom and observed the P.O. writing on the paper. At that point, the subject drew a 25 caliber automatic and stated to the P.O., give me the fucking paper, give me the fucking paper. The P.O. slipped the paper in his pocket and walked out of the bathroom. 
The perp was still holding the gun on him. The PO started to hand over his buy money and then drew his 380 automatic and fired seven rounds. The subject was struck at least five times. The PO was not sure if the perp had managed to fire a shot. The perp was removed by ambulance to Cabrini Hospital. A 25 caliber automatic was recovered at the scene and vouchered at the 9th precinct under, and then it's blacked out. There were no witnesses to the actual shooting due to the fact that it took place inside the apartment and only the PO and the subject were present. Forensic report from the crime scene unit. 25 caliber automatic Webley and Scott shows no evidence of discharge. A single page forensic report says that the gun the undercover cop claims Billy pulled was never fired. Next page says Cabrini Hospital, doctor's name is also blacked out, five torso front, one back. So that's five shots in the torso and one in the back. Then we turn to a page that looks like it's been photocopied from some sort of notebook. This is just a piece of paper that's handwriting that lists the kind of gun that Billy has, the serial number of it. And then this person wrote out the name of the guy in the cowboy hat. It's written here and blacked out. The name of the undercover cop has been covered by a big black rectangle. This is so frustrating because it's written by hand. It's almost like it's so close. In homicide cases like this in New York City, a detective is assigned to investigate whether the shooting is justified. During his investigation, the detective writes follow-up reports that are known as DD-5s. We turn to a DD-5 from the day after the shooting. Number one, at 1700 hours, which is 5 p.m. on June 4th, 82, I was present at Cabrini Hospital and did attempt to interview the perp in this matter, one William Heitzman in ICU thereat. At the time of the attempted interview, the perp was in a semi-conscious state and was unable to respond to our inquiries. The investigating detective tried to take Billy's statement on the first day he was in the hospital, but Billy couldn't talk. In another DD-5, a detective reports a part of the case that has haunted my mother for decades. June 16th, 1982, One Police Plaza. The perp William Heitzman did expire from gunshot wounds at Cabrini Hospital on 6-15-82. And then it says, case remains closed. Justifiable homicide. So that right there is the end of the investigation into what happened to Billy Balls, as far as the police are concerned. They classified it as justifiable homicide and closed the case. 
The day after he died. The day after he died. That's the last DD5 that we have. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. They're saying, first of all, that he had a gun, which we don't know if he had a gun. So not only is he saying that he had a gun, but he's saying he pulled it on him and cocked it, and still he had time to shoot seven rounds before Billy fired even one. I don't buy it. I don't know what any of this means. You know who does know what all of this means. (laughs) Hey, Austin. Ron. How are you, sir? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm good. I wanted to see if we could schedule a time to come by and talk through the police report. Um, Yeah, that would be great. Uh, That that would be great. Uh, What works for you? Ron, I do have one more question, though. How do you think we should refer to you? Because you're not our lawyer. Yeah, I mean, really, any anything that you want works. The law, um, the law cowboy. Uh, right, you know, law outlaw, hired gun, the I, law slinger. <laughs> I, I don't, you know what, really, pretty much anything works great. Ron Kuby, the law slinger, <laughs> after the break. Howdy, partner. excited about what's about to happen. <laughs> Austin and I show up to Ron Kuby's office with high expectations that we'll get some answers. Hi! How are you? <laughs> Thanks for seeing us again. Sure! Ron leads us into a corner conference room. I think the office smells like dog piss. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> well, luckily you have dogs. We sit down, and the tone of the room changes as we begin looking through the police report. When you looked at the police report generally, did anything jump out at you? So let me tell you how I I read all of these documents together and the, 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 the story that the police have. Ron starts with the detailed account of what happened inside the storefront that night. So the detective who's, who's making this report is speaking to the undercover. This is all sort of, you know, within an, a couple hours of, of, of the shooting. The undercover stated that he had gone to 13 Third Avenue to make a narcotics purchase from a male known as Billy Piano. During the time that he was in the apartment, the PO observed the subject look at a telephone number written on a newspaper and then call his supplier. And and, and so right now, at this moment, Billy has been pegged for exactly what he is, which very small-time drug dealer, um, street-level drug deals, but he's obviously getting his drugs from somebody. And the idea is to find out who he's getting his drugs from, work your way up the chain until finally you get somebody who's actually worth arresting. So that makes perfect sense so far. 
Um, while the subject was on the phone, the police officer managed to look at the number and then went into the bathroom to write the number down. That also kind of makes perfect sense. The subject came into the bathroom and observed the police officer writing on the paper. At this point, the subject drew a 25 caliber automatic and stated to the PO, give me the fucking paper, give me the fucking paper. And that also makes sense. The, 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 the part that I, I, I don't buy entirely, um, so the police officer slipped the paper in his pocket and walked out of the bathroom, presumably while Billy's still holding the gun on him, which strikes me as a, a, a needless risk. I mean, under those circumstances, when somebody's pointing a gun at you, saying, hand over the fucking paper, hand over the fucking paper, what does one do? Hand over the fucking paper. Fucking paper, right, yeah, exactly. So I, I don't entirely, quote unquote, buy that account. The police officer walked out of the bathroom. The perp, Billy, was still holding the gun on him. I mean, I, I kind of believe that Billy lowers the gun or doesn't keep the gun trained on the cop. And I, I kind of believe that based on what the cop is saying that he did. The police officer started to hand over his buy money and then drew his 380 automatic and fired seven rounds. So then the subject was struck at least five times. Police officer not sure if the perp managed to fire shots. Perp was removed to Cabrini Hospital. 25 caliber automatic was recovered at the scene and vouchered at the 9th precinct. Ron's conclusion? It's not exactly like the police say it is, but it's not a premeditated murder either. Part of the reason Ron thinks it's not a premeditated murder is because the undercover cop describes using something called buy money with Billy. Buy money. And that's a term of art. When you go make an undercover operation, an undercover drug purchase, they record the serial numbers of the currency that's being handed over. And that way, when they make an arrest, they can report that, you know, the defendant had on him $80 of pre-marked buy money. These are the serial numbers. And, and, and so that suggests, at the very least, this is not some rogue operation that the undercover is conducting on his own for the purpose of his own whatever. It suggests this is all part of a, a real operation. I don't think Billy suspected for a minute that this was an undercover cop. I think he thought this was just some, you know, dirtbag buyer who was trying to um, jump over him in the supply chain to cut out his profit margin. I don't think Billy intended to shoot anybody or would have shot anybody. I think the gun was there solely for intimidation purposes. They recovered a 25 caliber Webley and Scott. It's an old, not terribly great gun. This is, this is not a serious gun in the sense of you don't go into combat situations with one of those things. This is, this is a pocket pistol that you keep for intimidation purposes or maybe have to shoot somebody and run. And it's exactly the kind of gun that if, if you thought that somebody was closing in on you and you get rid of most of your heavy-duty firearms, it's the kind of thing you just sort of keep in your pocket. 
And if you're like just a regular dirtbag drug buyer, kind of street buyer kind of thing, and somebody points a gun at you, you're going to be intimidated. You know, if, if you're a cop and you happen to be carrying your own pocket pistol, a much bigger and better pocket pistol than the ones being pointed at you, you're going to have a very different response. What about the fact that the police report says Billy was shot five times in the torso and once in the back? If it were the other way around, five shots in the back and one in the torso, I'd be a lot more suspicious. And there's a couple of things about this. One is frequently what, what is referred to casually as the back is the side. Um, and if it was a shot in the back, my, my guess is that once the detective started firing, at some point uh, Billy was turned or spun around. I mean, I guess there's a universe you can say, well, wh- why don't you think he shot him once in the back and then Billy, having been shot in the back, turns around and gets uh, five in the torso. And I guess the answer is, given the way this went down, I can't really see Billy turning his back to the undercover. So this is the forensic report. It was sent by the crime scene unit. The crime scene unit took a look at what they claim was Billy's gun. Uh, shows no evidence of discharge. Can you say that Billy did not shoot toward the cop then? Billy didn't, didn't fire his gun at all. But as we know, the undercover cop definitely did. Um, they recovered six auto-discharged shells on the floor near the entrance. For the first time, this detail that all the discharged shells were found near the entrance sticks out to me. Okay, the cop is in the bathroom then getting out of the bathroom with a gun trained on you. Right. And then getting all the way back across the apartment and you're by the door. You've now fully established that not only is this person not gonna shoot you, you're on the move. So why do you then basically get to the door where you could conceivably walk out and leave and turn around and shoot him? Uh, I agree. Look, if you found one of the discharged shells near the entrance, you could say, all right, somebody kicked it in a scuffle. Um, But all of them seem to indicate that that was the area in which the the cop was was shooting. But again, cops don't have to leave an armed perpetrator alone in an apartment. Um, Cops get to shoot them, which is why I said all along, I, I, I don't think the killing happened exactly the way the undercover says. And they usually don't happen exactly the way the cops say so. The best argument you could make is that, okay, um, probably didn't have to shoot him looking back on it. And I think that that's true. And somebody who was not a cop um, would have dealt with this in a different way. But the truth is, that's what cops do. Cops see a gun, see an armed suspect, and they will shoot that armed suspect whether they are in immediate danger or not. You know, cops tend to shoot. But are we sure Billy was an armed suspect? We ask Ron if there's any possibility that the gun wasn't Billy's. 
Any possibility is, of course, yes. To imagine that world, you would have to imagine that the undercover carries with him a throwaway gun or a gun to flake a suspect. And that's a risky thing to do. And let's assume that this detective is just such a bad, bad person that he always walks around with an extra gun to plant on somebody in case he, he has to kill somebody. Is that possible? Sure. And is it possible that for reasons that are utterly opaque, this relatively simple drug buy from a relatively low-level drug seller went so wrong somehow that the undercover decided he had to shoot him many, many times and then lie about it and plant a gun. Yeah, that's all possible. But there's nothing to support that theory and everything to support the notion that fundamentally, in terms of the way this all happened, the cop is telling the truth. The only place that, that he's, he's lying, I think, or, or shadowing is just how much danger he actually felt he was in at the time when he withdrew his firearm and fired. You have an undercover detective who's giving a very straightforward story, and then you have a guy who is in the hospital. Uh, he's charged with attempted murder of a police officer as well as other things. And then, uh, you know, two weeks later he dies. The end. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I get up and leave the room. Yeah. So, wait, okay. So yeah, the rest of it, uh, we can wait for Aya or what else, whatever you want to do. What? I guess do you, with, with the reaction like Aya just had to this, do you have experience with clients where you're you take a case thinking that it's, like you were saying before, thinking it might be a good case, and then realizing that it's not, and then having to deal with the fallout from it with other people? Yeah, Is that time. your role? Is that- I mean, that, that happens all the time. I mean, I mean, look, when you have to break it to them that this was, you know, quote, clean shoot, close quote, which is just sort of a legal term, which means, look, this was legally justified. You know, there's a lot of, it doesn't make it right, it doesn't make it this, it shouldn't happen, it is unfair, and all of these things that are, that are totally true. They exist in an absolutely true universe, and people know that. But what they don't then understand is why they don't have a case. And, you know, the answer is that the system is designed to make sure under those circumstances they don't have a case. I mean, the system embodies structural violence. And, and the most direct form of structural violence is, is the police. And, and so, you know, how many billy balls are you willing to allow to be killed to make sure you are safe? And the answer that most people give is... Just do whatever you need to do. 
judges, jurors, citizens, courts are always willing to say, well, it's too bad, but that's what happens. You know, people want to be kept safe. And part of that is not second guessing every single thing the cops do. How, how do you reconcile that, that balance between keeping the public safe and a system that embodies structural violence? I, I don't reconcile it. It's irreconcilable. I actually just threw up. Bathroom? No. I <laughs> think. Uh, didn't expect that to happen. Uh, yeah, I know you're interviewing me, but but why is this a, a, a surprise or a shock or a jarring thing? <sighs> the mundanity of it is really painful. You hope that the greatest tragedy in somebody that you love as much as, I'm sorry, I'm getting so emotional, this is so intense. I'm sure you're used to this from people, but you hope that the greatest tragedy in your mother's life is something extraordinary. You hope that it's not something as mundane as he was an idiot and pulled a gun on a cop. You hope that it's not a narcotics detective went to go make a drug buy and probably wasn't even looking for him, probably was looking for the guy higher up the chain, and he probably could have gotten out of it if he was a little less irrational and a little less wild and a little more level-headed, and if he hadn't pulled a gun, maybe he could have flipped or whatever the fuck, but the mundanity of it is just, like, makes me feel sick. Literally, actually just makes me sick. Are you thinking about your mom um, and what interactions with her are going to be like? Yeah. This is this is heavy. I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be really hard news to deliver. Right now, I'm grappling with an idea that made me puke. What if the story the guy in the cowboy hat told is true? Then what? Then what am I doing here? Why did I dig all this shit up? Am I just going to destroy the story my mom has told herself to survive? I don't know what to do. But I do know who I want to talk to about everything. One, two, three, four, five. I mean, you're very close to the mic. There's one person who knows the situation and my relationship with my mom almost as well as I do. My name is Seth Tillett, and I'm Iowa's father. And Rebecca's erstwhile lover. Ugh. Um, this is the police report from the incident. Wow. I'm just going to read you one piece and then hand it to you. I show my dad the police report. Oh, my God. God, it makes everything look so tawdry and hopeless and, like, deadly. Oh, Jesus Christ. 
promise me something? Never show this to Rebecca. Don't do this. Why? I never thought there would be an actual eyewitness report of what happened. And we have absolutely no way of knowing whether that's true at all. Next week on The Ballad of Billy Balls. If somebody who you thought was your life partner, your protector, your like soulmate is viciously murdered, your grief is of a different nature. It's not distinguishable from anger. It's raging grief. It's like slaughter everybody grief. Crime Town is Zach Stewart Pontier and Mark Smerling. The Ballad of Billy Balls is hosted by me, Io Tillett Wright, and made in partnership with Cadence 13. You can find me on the internet. I'm Io Loves You on Everything. I love hearing from you guys. And if you want to know more about my story, pick up my memoir, Darling Days. We also want to hear from you. We have a voicemail set up for you to call us. Here's Summer. I just want to call and tell you guys what your podcast means to me. I had a couple friends that were brutally murdered. And, you know, my friends weren't perfect. And the media portrayed them as almost, like, deserving or complacent. It's just nice to have people that care about what happens to people that other people might not consider perfect. It just means a lot. Yeah, you know, that's the point of this whole thing. Nobody deserves to be forgotten. If there's something on your mind, or you have a story, or a joke, or thoughts, or feelings, or complaints, whatever, call us and leave us a voicemail at 570-392-9660. You can also get into our discussion forum on our website, theballadofbillyballs.com, which this week I really think you should do because now there is a lot to work with. Go get your detective on. The show is produced by me, Kevin Shepard, and Ryan Swikert. Our senior producer is my man, Austin Mitchell. Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier and Mark Smerling. Fact-checking by Jennifer Blackman. I see you, Jenny. This episode was mixed by Sam Baer. Sound design and music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Dark Allies by Light Asylum. The rest of their music is just as good. Go listen to it. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Special thanks to Daniela Araya, Rachel Lee Wright, and Emily Wiedemann for putting up with us. Green Card Pictures, Alessandro Santoro, Bill Clegg, Ben Davis, Oren Rosenbaum, and the team at Cadence 13. And of course, as always, my mom, without whom none of this would be possible. She's fine.